It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, this is Eric with a few notes on today's release. This was recorded over half a year ago, and I've sat on it because I didn't want to release it. I had hoped that the story it discusses would have been followed up by others, as I never wanted to be entangled with it. Instead, that story has barely moved. For some reason, there is no one capable within the world of institutional media or government of moving this enormous story forward despite worldwide interest. I've elsewhere named that unseen force the DISC, or Distributed Idea Suppression Complex. What I see when watching this video of the episode in question is a frightened 53-year-old man in an unscripted and perhaps occasionally rambling hour of discussion of Jeffrey Epstein. He doesn't exactly know how to say what he has got to get across, but perhaps that is because he isn't simply a middle-aged man at all. When I look closer, I see a terrified 10 or 11-year-old boy who many years ago was sent to a therapist. Why was that child so terrified of going to see a therapist, you may ask? Well, because of inappropriate events set in motion by the therapist's behavior at the first of their two meetings. That, however, was not what caused the lasting terror. Despite the therapist being a trained and established authority figure and the boy being a minor, it was possible for the boy to simply and firmly say, no, I do not want that, you must stop. Thus, the boy is not a survivor. He was not a victim. And he did not want a random broken person to be integrated into his life story. Today, the man in that chair addressing the camera is simply the man that became of an unlucky boy who was sent to see a professionally licensed therapist who crossed his path. What was terrifying instead was that when I explained that I did not ever wish to go back to that cursed office, I was forced against my will, and with a good amount of screaming and terror, I might add, to go again for a second meeting. At that second meeting, I was intimidated by the failed and inappropriate therapist who was obviously himself terrified. Being forced back into such a dark office alone as a boy to be berated, threatened, and shamed by an out-of-control representative of the world of institutional authority alerted me to just how badly outgunned the individual is when confronted by the terrifying reality of institutional actors attempting to silence a lone voice. Why would no one listen to the boy when he told them what had happened? Why wouldn't anyone adult, powerful, and credentialed speak up for that child and his right to be free of the supposed therapy and therapist? Could no one see the terror in the child's eyes? Why simply because two sessions had been booked did he need to continue with this random therapist who was clearly a damaged soul and one who needed real therapy much more than the boy? This episode is ultimately about the world of institutions, the institutions of journalism that will regularly destroy individuals by reputation but who will generally not ask comparable questions of other institutions, the institutions of the intelligence world which owe us information as to what is known about Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, and their operations the institutions of government that will not hold hearings into out-of-control intelligence activities as we did in the 1970s, and the institutions of technology, which track our every move and know all our secrets, yet cannot locate a single individual like Jeffrey Epstein's accomplice, who completely improbably seems to have vanished from the face of the earth as of March 2020. But just as this episode is about institutions, it is also about individuals and the various ways that they are made vulnerable to institutional objectives. Because every individual may be destroyed at will by the same complex of institutions that are themselves deciding not to act with vigor in policing each other, we are all at risk when we deviate from their scripts and expect structural change. 
Thus, the act of pointing out the absurdity of the story is in fact terrifying, which gets to the questions raised by the young boy in our story. Why will no one listen to me when I say I do not ever wish to encounter the monster or the official class he represents ever again? Why must I go back to the same institutions that harm me? Why does a child's evident terror mean nothing to any adult nor any institution at all? Why can we not talk openly about the risks to the individuals from the expert and authority classes when we have a conflict between them? As it happens, analogs of all of those personal questions are now being asked in hushed tones about Jeffrey Epstein and the bizarre institutional response to his story. Why are we not expending resources to figure out what giant structure we apparently just tripped over? Are we really going to sit here and not ask whether this was a protected or state-sponsored pedophile running some kind of intelligence operation to control people in positions of power, wealth, and influence? Are we okay with the idea that we aren't even asking on-the-record questions about whether our intelligence communities traffic in underage minors, some as young as 12 years of age? Well, I have an answer for that boy. One day, you will become a man and you will fear loss in the battle between the flawed and vulnerable individual that all adults eventually become and the amoral institutional world who continues to hold most of the best cards. You will learn the story of Gene Seberg, and that alone will change your life. You will not know to whom you can turn. You will come to believe that there is no news media, nor justice system, nor social movement, nor representative government that truly cares about protecting minors in real terms when institutional power, money, secrecy, and sex are all woven together. You will become part of the problem by remaining silent for a while to cope with your fears. That is, unless you are able to overcome them, to clear your throat, and finally say, you know what, I refuse to continue to be part of the charade in this way anymore. I have always felt Jeffrey Epstein was a construct, and I now fear that he was a state-sponsored pedophile protected by governments. And I have kept quiet too long, partially out of fear that the trail could lead to either or both of the two nations I love most in this world. I'm not really here for myself, and I've been avoiding this, and perhaps at least directly, I'm not even mostly here for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein and his organization. I am at last really here selfishly for a young boy long gone, who I abandoned to prove to him that it was actually possible at personal risk to stand up for children and against the system. These young girls are no less deserving, of course, but I don't know any of them personally, so I will stick to the issue that animates me, the individual standing against the institutions who would crush him or her. So to that long dead and previously abandoned former self, let me just say this. Sorry I'm a little late, kid. I uh, became afraid that the imperfections of what I'm about to say next could derange my adult life and make me vulnerable to those who will destroy anything and anyone who threatens them using everything at their disposal. I apologize for my cowardice. It is one of many character flaws that I am working to correct. But you as a boy did nothing wrong, and it will be a pleasure to stand up for you come what may. You're a solid kid who didn't deserve this, and I think you deserve a better champion, but Jesus wasn't available, so you got me instead. Let's do this thing. I know this is crazy, but I think that there's even a remote chance we can take these guys. We can at least try and go down swinging. Let's just release it, flaws and all, and hope that the world is more kind than its failing institutions. With that said, um, stay tuned. Please be a little bit forgiving and enjoy the episode. Hello, you found the portal. I think this is going to be a little bit of an unusual episode because it's going to deal with a current event and I try to make most of these episodes somewhat more timeless so that they're not referenced to something in specific that is going to age. But the event that I'm talking about is the very mysterious circumstances that are currently animating so many people's speculations in the news. That is the apparent death of Jeffrey Epstein by his own hand. Now, 
I want to say, first of all, that I have absolutely no special inside knowledge of the situation. I know people who knew him, and I met him once. But it's not like I have any particular line on information from any particularly interesting source about the situation. Furthermore, I don't think that I'm going to be using any special kind of analysis that is known only to me, but I did want to talk to people about responsible conspiracy theorizing. That is, in the minds of many, people believe that conspiracy theorists are people like Alex Jones, people who are spouting all sorts of crazy ideas, some of which might have some grain of truth in them, but in general it feels like an exercise in uh, talking to the tinfoil hat crowd. Now, I don't know much about Alex Jones. Perhaps he's better than I think he is. But what I want to talk about is a different kind of conspiracy theorizing. So without further ado, welcome to this episode of The Portal on the subject of Jeffrey Epstein. So the first thing I want to do is I want to be relatively clear that I'm somebody who believes that there is a fair amount of organization behind the scenes usually of a relatively low level of organization that uh, is unknown to the, to the people who are watching TV or listening to, let's say, NPR on the radio. And at various times, I've dug more deeply into various stories. And so I want you to have some idea of my history in this space. In the 1980s and 1990s, I became very active in believing that the so-called STEM shortage of scientists and engineers that was claimed by the Policy Research and Analysis Division of the National Science Foundation uh, was, in fact, a conspiracy in order to make life easier for employers who would be facing uh, American scientists with an ability to bargain uh, and make higher wage demands, and that the National Academy of Sciences and National Science Foundation interceded, interceded on the behalf of employers, which was tampering in the labor market in an absolutely vital sector, resulting in the Immigration Act of 1990, or IMACT 90 as it was called. At that point, I also became aware of what I have termed the Borjas rectangle theory. That is, is that employers generally, in free market economies, when they're complaining about labor shortages, are actually trying to transfer wealth from labor to capital, uh, complaining instead that there is a small inefficiency that needs to be rectified, which we might call the Harburger Triangle. So that is, employers claim that there's a small inefficiency, but in fact are seeking large uh, transfer payments from the vulnerable to the well-heeled. I also believe that NAFTA and the Free Trade Agreement from the 1990s was a kind of conspiracy supported by the economics uh, establishment of the United States that they knew that in fact economics was not, uh, sorry, uh, trade, free trade was not a freebie. It was not in fact uh, a rising tide that lifted all boats, but was in fact, again, a transfer, um, which was claimed to be a uh, pure good for everyone. This is the difference between something called the Caldor-Hicks objective function and the Pareto objective function. I also believe that string theory was largely a desperation measure in physics that was sold to the world to buy time when, in fact, the field of theoretical physics was failing. I also claimed that the Boskin Commission, formed by Packwood and Moynihan in the mid-1990s, was a kind of conspiracy to transfer uh, actually a trillion dollars 
um, by using the fact that Social Security payments are indexed to inflation as well as tax brackets being indexed to inflation. So that if you could show that the CPI was overstated and you could reduce the CPI, you could transfer millions without having to touch the so-called third rail of American politics. This brings us to the two trading fortunes in New York City that during the uh, first decade of the new millennium made no sense to me. Those were Bernie Madoff, then referred to as the Jewish T-Bill, and Jeffrey Epstein. In the case of Madoff, I made a wrong guess. I believe that Bernie Madoff was front-running a traditional business that he held using uh, actual orders that he knew were being placed, and in his hedge fund was effectively cheating uh, based on the inside information he had from a legitimate business in an illegitimate business. I goofed, and it was wrong. In fact, he was uh, operating a pyramid scheme. It didn't occur to me. In the case of Jeffrey Epstein, we'll, we'll get to that shortly, but it made no sense when I actually looked into the story. Let me keep going. I also became aware of what I called the gated institutional narrative. In effect, a storyline or narrative that many institutions claim to believe but would easily uh, be disrupted if outsiders were allowed to comment on it and a way of walling it off so that these narratives could in fact govern uh, the American mindset and get us talking about things that we would never normally choose to talk about in terms that seem completely unnatural to me. This is also the origin of the four quadrant theory, which I've pushed out, which is a way of intimidating people uh, away from holding positions that are not supposed to be habitable. Like for example, if you're a xenophilic restrictionist on immigration, supposedly this isn't a position. The most famous example of the theory is Kathy Newman questioning Jordan Peterson saying, uh, so what you're really saying is, and this is an implied threat, which is that if you try to express something subtle, you will be mapped to expressing something that is beyond the pale. In addition, uh, in the early 2000s, I came out uh, talking against the great moderation uh, and mortgage-backed securities. I published, uh, in, I think I submitted in 2001 to Risk Magazine, my first uh, article on mortgage-backed securities, and I kept talking about the fact that we had not actually banished volatility from the markets. And this is a period of time where I was uh, sort of going around the hedge fund con conference circuit with uh, Nassim Taleb talking about the fact that even though volatility was decreasing, that this was not a permanent state of affairs. Furthermore, I objected to non-recourse loans uh, in the wake of the great financial crisis. And I've talked openly about the uh, false narratives of the inevitability of Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Madoff, which was a giant mistake, in my opinion, of the New York Times interceding in an election in a completely inappropriate way. And they doubled down and came up with the impossibility of Donald Trump, which I tried to use preference falsification, the theory of Timur Koran we just had on the program, in order to say that the likelihood of a Trump victory was far higher than anyone had imagined. I had also said various things about Brexit, um, where I thought that the likelihood that that would um, actually pass was high. And afterwards, after the 2016 election, I talked about fake news as an invented concept. It had been discussed before that, but there was a slew of articles about fake news which I still think was a completely inauthentic attempt uh, to put in a placeholder for some ab ability to control the internet, in particular the large platforms, so that a repeat of 2016 could never happen in the year 2020. 
uh, in effect, that there sh should be some way of restoring the gated institutional narrative, which had clearly broken. Uh, I've also been quite vocal on the data and society alternative uh, influencer network theory, uh, on, particularly on the Dave Rubin program. I think that this was a transparent attempt uh, to attempt to control the internet and the inability to, uh, of influencers to gain stature if they're outside the gated institutional network. And I also made several tweets um, around Jeffrey Epstein, one of them which says that if he is in fact a construct of the intelligence community, uh, either the U.S. intelligence community or a foreign one, then clearly he could not be allowed to live. Many people also made similar uh, predictions. Um, but that gives you an idea of the kind of thing that I've been talking about. I, in general, believe that where we are as a society is that we are expected to believe in narratives that any person with a monicum of intelligence and a certain awareness of history cannot possibly be expected to believe with a straight face. All right. That leads us to the doorstep of what I call responsible conspiracy theorizing. Now, in order to do responsible conspiracy theorizing, it's important not to be definite about things we don't know. And I'm going to try to let you know that I actually don't know what has happened. In fact, the official story is quite possible. Um, from what I know, it's not impossible that Jeffrey Epstein was a perverted, very rich man who is dead by his own hand in custody through an unlikely but not impossible set of circumstances. However, unfortunately for me, I met Jeffrey Epstein in 2004, I think, or perhaps 2003. And I met him in his home in Manhattan on 71st Street when it, uh, I, he took an interest in talking to me both as a scientist and as somebody who was interested in foreign exchange trading. I found that meeting so bizarre and so remarkable that it has stuck with me ever since. Recently, when the news turned to Jeffrey Epstein, my wife said to me, you know, Eric, you called this when you met him uh, early on. And I said, what do you remember? And she said that you called me immediately afterwards and you said, I've just met a construct. And she asked what it was a construct. And I said, I met somebody who appears to be a hedge fund billionaire who I don't think is actually, in fact, involved particularly in hedge fund trading. I felt like what I was meeting was an actor, an actor who had been hired or constructed to play a part. Ever since that meeting, I've used one word and one word alone when talking about Jeffrey Epstein, and particularly with people who knew him, who were friends or acquaintances or colleagues of mine. And by using the word construct repeatedly, I attempted to make an indelible image that I was very bothered and was in fact making a prediction that one day it was quite probable, although not definite and certainly not certain, that Jeffrey Epstein would be revealed to be something other than what he had apparently been um, chronicled as being and what he had portrayed himself as being. As a result, I now have a different situation. Because I was making this prediction early on and I had no idea what turn of events uh, would bring us to the present, uh, I was quite vocal about something which perhaps today, if I knew how things were going to end up, I would have said nothing at all. So I feel, in fact, a little bit more vulnerable having spoken out on this as if I know something rather than just a person who found himself in remarkable circumstances and didn't believe what he was being told. 
And this is why I'm doing this right now. In part, I want to disgorge everything that I know or believe that I know about Jeffrey Epstein so that it will be very clear to anybody who would attempt to intimidate me that there is nothing to be gained. I know nothing proprietary. I have no special inside information. And I want to get to how I came to believe that Jeffrey Epstein was quite likely the construct of an intelligence community, either ours in the U.S. or somewhere else. Curiously, many humans have weirdly reversed the typical male and female norms and traits from nature. Peacocks are famously more adorned than the plainer peahens, and this is frequently the case with lizards or even spiders. Yet, oddly, in my country and culture, there is perhaps only one piece of jewelry or adornment that any male can wear with universal acceptance, a wristwatch. But here's the catch. Do you really want to communicate that you overpaid for a luxury watch if you can get truly luxurious styling at a fraction of the price in a stunning wristwatch that tells time with a highly accurate movement? Well, the folks at returning sponsor Vincero have solved this problem for you. I got two watches from them that I would be proud to wear to any interview, but they were so reasonably priced that I was actually able to give one of them to my 14-year-old son as a stunning timepiece of his own. So if you're looking for a great timepiece, Vincero is sponsoring this podcast by offering 15% off your entire order when you use code PORTAL. Just head to VinceroWatches.com and use code PORTAL for 15% off and free shipping. That's V-I-N-C-E-R-O Watches.com and use my exclusive discount code PORTAL to get 15% off the entire catalog. Last time I did a spot for Wine Access, I actually hijacked the commercial to tell a personal story, which I will now finish. You see, this is because great wine isn't a normal product. It integrates with the most personal aspects of your life. Wine Access sent me to a tasting for Silver Oak Vineyards without knowing that their Cabernet Sauvignon was actually a bottle that my sister-in-law Heather Hying's parents, Doug and Jesse Hying, had brought to my brother Brett's wedding for us all to share. Well, Doug died several years ago, and Brett and Heather had to tell my nephews that he had passed. Everyone was very sad. Until the doctors came back in and said, you know, we seem to have brought him back. So my nephews actually got another year of their grandfather. I got to think back on this bizarre miracle year. And just by going to this tasting and letting such a distinct bottle take me back 20 years, I realized I probably had no actual access to some of these memories without an olfactory memory. So may I make a recommendation to you all? Consider, if you were in a position to do so, buying some great wine and putting it away for the next generation or two. And thank you to Wine Access and Silver Oak for giving me the opportunity to conjure a very good man, now gone. With WineAccess.com slash a portal, you're going to get yourself one hell of a bottle. With WineAccess.com slash portal, so why not order them bottles tonight? You'll get $100 off and support the show by going to WineAccess.com slash portal. You'll be glad you did. So in order to do responsible conspiracy theorizing, my first rule is is that one should not attempt to allege a type of conspiracy that has never been encountered before. Over the years, many conspiracies have been uncovered. And so we have a menu, if you will, uh, of proven conspiracies with which we can try to figure out whether something is in fact possible. And to give you an idea, I'm going to list a small number of conspiracies that have been proven and give you the idea of why these things figure in my imagination. And I think that what will happen over time is that you'll see that I'll refer to the same conspiracies over and over again because they give us an idea of the boundaries of the possible. First of all, one question. Is it possible that mainstream media can be weaponized by the intelligence community for the purpose of destroying a well-known individual? That is, 
as I am recording this, I am aware that the intelligence community could decide to tarnish or destroy or, in their words, cheapen my reputation by planting stories in mainstream media. In this case, I would point people to one of the most important examples we have, which is the destruction of Jean Seberg, the leading actress who was originally found by Otto Preminger to play Joan of Arc and also used by Jean-Luc Godard in the film Breathless as the heroine. Jean Seberg was uh, accused, uh, due to her radical politics active in the Black Panther Party, of cuckolding her husband and bearing the child of a Black Panther uh, in a news item that was planted by uh, the FBI with Joyce Haber of the Los Angeles Times, later repeated by Newsweek. The great thing about this is you don't have to believe me. You can just look it up. Does the U.S. have the ability to assassinate its own people who may be trying to do good? Well, in the case of the person who invented the term the Rainbow Coalition, this appears to be the case. It wasn't Jesse Jackson. It was, in fact, a man named Fred Hampton. And my understanding is he was trying to get black street gangs to stop warring with each other to form a political coalition and was assassinated for his uh, attempt to do so uh, in his bed in Chicago, Illinois. So this shows that assassinations by our, our intelligence community and our particular form of secret police, the FBI, is also possible. Can you have a highly coordinated silent hit with tremendous complexity going off almost without a hitch. I believe that the surveillance photos that we have seen in Dubai indicate that this is, in fact, has occurred recently. I'm not going to say who carried out the hit because that is not known, but it is widely believed to be a particular country that is not hard to guess. Is it possible to suicide someone? Normally, we think of committing suicide as an individual action. But do we ever find the intelligence communities attempting to in the sense of a transitive verb, suicide someone by letting them know that they will turn their life into a living hell so that uh, committing suicide is the only way out. In fact, this is uh, what the subject of the FBI's um, letter by the hand of Sullivan to Martin Luther King Jr. was when the attempt was to tell King that he was finished and that if he didn't commit suicide, that his legacy and his name would be tarnished. Would an intelligence community ever contemplate using organized crime, such as La Cosa Nostra, uh, in order to carry out uh, an act that it didn't want to do itself? This is what we found the comedian Dick Gregory was uh, considered being subjected to when we found out that the FBI was thinking about having La Cosa Nostra uh, be informed that he had been talking about union uh, activities and labor racketeering. So yes, it is quite possible that the intelligence community would use organized crime. This is also a proven fact. Would we ever have the use of orgies and honeypots together with an elaborately constructed backstory in which an actor and the character they played were entirely different? This is in fact the story of Eli Cohn, perhaps Israel's most famous spy discovered in Damascus uh, as if he was uh, an Arab who had come uh, from Argentina as a playboy using alcohol uh, and women in order to in, uh, integrate himself into the highest echelons of Syrian society, particularly the intelligence and defense communities. So yes, people are constructed uh, to be something other than they are, and honeypots are very much uh, a possible use in the intelligence world. 
Is there intelligence uh, community interest in control of the media? I would commend that you look at Project Mockingbird. Is there any attempt to gain control of innocent influencers? That is, are there any circumstances in which people simply have the crime of being influential used against them? In fact, you can look for Section A of the Reserve Index, people to be rounded up in times of national emergency inside the United States. This might include professors, labor organizers, professionals, authors, the independently wealthy. In other words, there is very much an interest in keeping track of people who've done nothing wrong, but in times of national emergency, you might want to make sure that none of these people are capable of influencing the population. Lastly, one of the things that we hear most frequently is, is that there is no ability to have conspiracies because any large group of people would not be able to keep a secret. That's a really silly idea because COINTELPRO, which was discovered by the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI in uh, 1971, when the word showed up in documents they stole from an office of the FBI in Media, Pennsylvania. And then they used the Freedom of Information Act in order to find out what COINTELPRO was. And it turned out that it was a permanent dirty tricks campaign living inside of the FBI. And that the deep throat uh, construct inside of the Watergate story um, of Woodward and Bernstein was in fact Mark Felt who I believe was the head of COINTELPRO after J. Edgar Hoover. So what we're going to be doing is simply exploring how the things that have been proven to be true might enter into the story of the unfortunate Jeffrey Epstein. In this circumstance, I want to say what it is that I'm asking for. And I'm going to be talking about the Church and Pike commissions and having them redone in the current era. If you don't know what the Church and Pike committees were, I believe the Church Committee was in the Senate and the Pike Committee was in the House, they were an attempt to invest our own, uh, investigate our own intelligence community in order to understand what the U.S. had become in an era that was rife with dirty tricks campaigns, often against our own citizens and often against people who had done nothing wrong other than exercising their constitutional rights to dissent from official narrative uh, and in general, mainstream perspectives. It is extremely important to me that the United States remain a place that is not only not hostile to heterodox thinking, but leads the world in heterodox thinking. This is our comparative advantage against places like China and Russia, which use fear to intimidate their people. If we cannot have heterodox thinkers operating with a feeling of safety in our own country, I believe that we are lost because I don't think we are going to be able to compete with powers that are able to organize people and use violence to coerce people uh, into doing things that our people would find absolutely unpalatable. Further, if you're in running a kind of conspiracy, and I don't, I'm not against conspiracies, and I'm not against the intelligence community, but it's important that the conspiracies be ethical, that they be public-minded, and that they be of a very high caliber. You shouldn't be able to trip over a conspiracy doing nothing wrong and find yourself in a world of pain. What I'm going to say about Jeffrey Epstein is that if the official story isn't true, and that in fact he was an intelligence community construct, either U.S. or foreign, then he was a very poor intelligence construct. It was easy to trip over Jeffrey Epstein. He was not well constructed. 
And I'll get into what I think may have been going on shortly. But the key point is, um, I had someone potentially reach out to me and intimidate me a bit. I don't know if it was directed, but they seemed to know a great deal about me. And they were trying to, I thought, dissuade me from talking about this and investigating this. My feeling about this is as if I'm tripping over your construct, then you goofed. It's not my problem. You drew up this person, whoever you may be, if I'm correct about this, and you made a mistake. And I'm going to say what that mistake is. But it shouldn't be uh, my job to get out of your way. It should be your job to make sure that I never run across your problem. So I believe that Jeffrey Epstein, if he was an intelligence construct, was extremely badly drawn. All right. Here's what went into my meeting of Jeffrey Epstein. My recollection is, is that Jeffrey Epstein had a staff of young adult women who I would guess were in their late 20s, perhaps early 30s. They seemed very professional. They seemed very attractive. And that they seemed to take uh, his schedule and all of the sort of incidental executive function uh, duties off of his hands. Uh, principally, I dealt with them, according to my recollection, and not with Jeffrey directly. I believe I became aware that Jeffrey wanted to see me. And since I was at that time involved in a small hedge fund, I went to see him on 71st Street across from the Frick Museum. When I got to the door, it was an extraordinary experience. He, in fact, was living in what was for Manhattan, which is famous for relatively small dwellings, even for the very rich, in a very large townhouse. I went through the door, I was greeted, I was treated professionally, and I was led to a waiting room. In that waiting room, which I believe was off to the left as you entered, uh, I sat in the chair for a while and I noticed that there was a large mechanical piece of art, uh, and I believe that it had some electronics to it. After a while of sitting in my chair, my recollection is that I went up to this art object and I started trying to inspect it. As I was looking at the art object, which I thought was quite innocent, I suddenly thought that I saw something like a lipstick camera. That is a very small camera whose lens was staring straight at me. My first thought was, holy cow, I've discovered that there's a hidden camera that has uh, been trained on me while I've been in this room. I thought myself to be rather clever for having found it. But my second thought was exactly the reverse of this. I bet this isn't that difficult to find. The object that it was buried in attracts attention, and it must be that people who look at this object invariably find the camera. And then I started asking myself, am I supposed to find the camera? Is this a test? Is, is this person trying to make sure I'm comfortable with being under surveillance? The whole thing was now quite queer, and I went back and I sat down as I recall it. Shortly thereafter, almost responsive to finding the camera, my recollection is that I was called out of this room and I was led to the back where I was to wait for Jeffrey Epstein in a very large room with an enormous dining table. Now, what was most memorable about this dining table was that it had a tablecloth that I thought to be incredibly inappropriate. What I recall was is that it had the appearance of uh, a draped coffin because the tablecloth was an extremely large American flag. If I recall correctly, there was another gentleman, um, perhaps another hedge fund person or a science person, who sat to my left. And I stared at this tablecloth and I thought, oh, you're going to serve me food on a tablecloth made out of the flag of my country? 
Or perhaps you're going to give me a beverage that might spill on the American flag? Is this a test of some kind of my loyalty to my country or whether I have some sort of morality that isn't burdened by some petty reverence to an inanimate object? I couldn't tell what was going on, but I started getting extremely agitated and, in fact, angry. And I think my, my feelings involved an expletive, which is F the person who decided that this was a good idea to put an American table, uh, flag as a tablecloth to test new people coming to the house. Returning sponsor Bowen Branch makes the most luxurious and the most comfortable sheets I've ever owned. But if you think about it, there are likely three things keeping you from luxury bedding. First of all, you don't want to lay awake at night thinking about how much you spent on bed sheets, right? I mean, that would defeat the entire purpose. Second, you aren't heartless, and you know that cotton farmers and textile workers are often being underpaid and treated unethically. Lastly, you don't really love having a fancy department store between you and the manufacturer, dipping their beak and adding very little value. You'd rather support great, passionate businesses than one that has inserted itself between you and the maker without your consent. Well, Bowen Branch has you covered with a three-pronged attack. They disintermediate the middlemen and split that savings three ways. They stay in business and support the portal. The farmers and factory workers are paid equitably. And you save money and sleep on the finest sheets. Everyone wins. Shipping is always free, and you can try them for 30 nights risk-free. And right now, get $50 off your first set of sheets at BolinBranch.com with promo code PORTAL. So get $50 off at BolinBranch.com using promo code PORTAL. That's B-O-L-L and branch, B-R-A-N-C-H, dot com, using code PORTAL. Restrictions may apply, so see bowlandbranch.com for details. Okay, I admit it. As a typical male, my response to shopping for essentials in a department store is usually something between anger and boredom. And that's why I'm jealous of returning sponsor Mac Weldon, whose founders instead had a eureka moment when they found themselves surrounded by a mind-numbing assortment of underwear and socks. They realized instead that consistent fit and quality had become a game of roulette for everyone. So they took matters into their own hand and founded a company that took it upon itself to actually re-engineer the fabric and obsess over every stitch and seam to make sure that their underwear is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. One thing I love about this sponsor is that they're so confident of their product that they're actually willing to give you something better than a money-back guarantee. At Mack Weldon, if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you with no questions asked. That means not only are you in a no-risk situation, you're effectively guaranteed to come out ahead. So for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code PORTAL. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, entering promo code PORTAL to get 20% off your first order. MacWeldon.com, promo code PORTAL. My recollection is that Jeffrey entered from the right with a young woman. In my mind, I remember her as being perhaps 22, 23. She was extremely attractive. As I recall, Jeffrey sat down and began bouncing this woman on his knee. So he motioned for her to sit down, and she appeared to be quite happy uh, in this role as Jeffrey asked questions and discussed uh, science, theories I had about markets, how they related to gauge theory, theoretical physics. I don't remember the man uh, saying much to me who was also in the room at the time. And so all I have a recollection of is the four of us, Jeffrey, the woman on his leg, and the other gentleman and myself. My recollection is also that in order to um, test our willpower and concentration, that Jeffrey would bounce this woman occasionally, that she would giggle uh, in order to test our resolve as to whether we could stay focused in the conversation. 
I found him to be quite intelligent. He clearly was no slouch, but I also found that every single interaction with him resulted in my being backfooted conversationally. He was constantly trying to throw me off guard. And at some level, I was also irritated and angered. I was trying to keep my cool during this entire interaction. And I thought to myself, I don't know anybody who behaves this way. I knew several rich people at that point in my life, and I've known many more very wealthy people, perhaps billionaires, billionaires of 10 and 11 figure fortunes. To the best of my recollection, I've never met a single other person who behaved in such a strange way. He didn't appear to be really that focused on markets and trading, and he appeared instead to be focused in creating a kind of cartoonish notion of what a billionaire might be in a very poorly drawn James Bond or Marvel uh, comic movie. And in so doing, I came to start to believe that I was not really talking to somebody who was a hedge fund manager or a financier, but that I was instead talking to a very intelligent and extremely charismatic man. My recollection was that he was magnetically handsome, perhaps a little off in certain ways. Certainly he's been compared to Ralph Lauren, which was my thought. But he was uh, prematurely gray, if I recall uh, the image, and he had a kind of charisma that could probably be quantified in an era of facial um, recognition. There was something very, very unusual and compelling about him, despite the fact that he was more than a little bit lubricious. The meeting ended abruptly at some point, and I walked out. I remember feeling that there are very few times in your life when you feel the hair on the back of your neck rise up. I don't know whether that's literally what happened, but it was certainly the sense that I had met something unholy. And I remember calling my wife, and I remember talking to her, and I've used the word construct ever since. Now, in order to do responsible conspiracy theorizing, uh, there are a couple of techniques that I would like to share that I use. One is that I would like to distinguish two separate elements that may in fact be the same thing. Let's imagine that the character that I met is in fact the forward-facing construct and that there was an underlying human being playing that character. Now, if he was genuine, then as we say in mathematics, without loss of generality, we can uh, adapt ourselves to the circumstance that the actor and the character were one and the same. So if the actor and the character are one and the same and that he was in no way a construct of anyone, then no harm, no foul. The, the theory will accommodate that. But it allows us to have a different possibility that the character and the actor are two different people. Another technique that I like to use is I like to think about a decision tree. And a decision tree, I don't want to have to say which branch of the decision tree is true and which branch is false. Very often when you share a conspiracy theory, what you find is that people want to know exactly what do you believe. Well, what do you think happened? What do you think was really going on? Well, the answer is I don't know. But what if you can come up with a theory that is true no matter which branch of the decision tree you're on that you have confidence in? This is where I've been headed. Lastly, I want to use a technique which is extremely important to me that I've talked about before at the behest of Naval Ravikant on Twitter. Uh, so you can find a Twitter thread that will, will go under something like the title, The Invisible World is First Discovered in the Visible World's Failure to Close. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, is that sometimes you discover that something is not right only because the explanation for everything that can be seen 
doesn't add up. My favorite example of this uh, is beta decay in something like cobalt-60. If you measure the momenta of all of the visible particles, you will notice that it doesn't add up to a, a conserved momentum equation. And this is what allowed Wolfgang Pauli to, to hypothesize that there must be something carrying away some momentum that is electrically neutral and cannot be seen. And he named it the neutrino, the little neutral one. Well, something didn't make sense about Jeffrey Epstein. How could somebody have that much money, claim to be a hedge fund manager, be so clearly focused on his persona and not look or sound like anybody I had ever met uh, in trading at that point? I believe that this person, in some sense, represented a failure of the visible world's failure to close, and so I decided that it was with some probability, not 100% certainly, that this person was in fact a construct. Now, around, I forget when it was, 2005, some point through 2007, Jeffrey Epstein becomes entangled uh, with Florida uh, law enforcement for requesting uh, or arranging massages from underage women that was almost certainly, uh, massage was a euphemism for some form of child prostitution. This was an extremely disturbing episode in which he was vigorously defended by a high-profile team, which is his right in an adversarial system. But it was with a particular vigor that I found absolutely disturbing and unsettling. And that the sentence given to Jeffrey Epstein seemed to be so reduced compared to what he was being accused of that I felt like I had to just check, check all of my intuitions why was such a light sentence being imposed? Further, people I knew went and visited him in prison and talked about him being a friend, talked about him being a massage enthusiast. It made no sense to me that this person who was being accused uh, of some form of pedophilia was being treated uh, very differently than I would have imagined by people that I very much respected at the time. I didn't understand what was going on, but I started to formulate a second theory, and I, I haven't heard it discussed much in the media, so I'll share it with you now. The idea is that if you buy the idea that Jeffrey Epstein was in fact a construct of the intelligence community, my belief is, is that he was constructed to be a sapiosexual Hugh Hefner. In some sense, he was the Dan Bilzerian of his day. That is, somebody who is not interested in uh, little girls, but is instead interested in young women, women over the age of consent, uh, who by law have every right to associate with whoever they wish to and uh, can engage in consensual relations. Now, you may frown upon it. You may look down upon it. You may say that it's an abuse of power uh, for a man in his 40s, 50s, what have you, to be cavorting with some person above the age of consent. However, I don't take the same exact view of it that I take uh, the view of somebody going below the age of consent. So in the era of Me Too, we have a different situation in which people are very uncomfortable even talking about uh, the legal situation in which uh, women in their early 20s who may be trying to wield sexual power are contending with men who may be trying to wield political or economic power. And that's an issue that I don't have a particular interest uh, in settling. But whatever it is, it's very different than somebody sending people to a high school to find 15-year-old girls or 14-year-old girls for erotic massages or prostitution or what have you. So my belief was, in effect, 
that the intelligence community that may have constructed Jeffrey Epstein was constructing him to be a sapiosexual Hugh Hefner, but that they had stupidly, stupidly and mistakenly hired somebody who was actually closer uh, to Humbert Humbert as an actor. That is, the underlying actor playing the role of Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein hedge fund genius, was in fact someone with a pedophilia problem that was probably not known to the intelligence community when it constructed the project, which I believe would have had to have dated from the 80s or 90s when Jeffrey Epstein first started uh, amassing his network of uh, high-profile contacts under this mysterious reputation as a -a one-of-a-kind financial genius. As a result, that would explain a great deal of why people's intuition was wildly off about Jeff. People who did not have a problem with an older rich man uh, going after young women above the age of consent were suddenly forced to contend with the question of was this person secretly interested in women below the age of consent and perhaps considerably below the age of consent. So this went some of the way towards explaining that. But I have had another issue that I've tried to talk to people about, which I also think figures into this story. Why was Jeffrey Epstein so focused on science? And in particular, why was he focused on heterodox science? Keep in mind, I'm just, I'm reading, I'm reading nothing. This is completely ad lib, so just allow me to catch my breath. In my theory, what I fear and what I believe is, is that the American scientific project has not understood that it has been abandoning its scientific assets. And if you look at my work, you can notice that this is a through line having nothing to do with Jeffrey Epstein. In effect, we have made it impossible for American scientists to profit using the market from their discoveries because we exclude fundamental discoveries from intellectual property protection. Therefore, you have a problem that when you make a discovery, it is both inexcludable if you share it in the scientific literature and inexhaustible. That is, that anyone who discovers it can use it without precluding anyone else from discovering, from using it. Okay. When you have something that fits those twin criterion, then even free market economists will agree that it constitutes a public good, a failure of the market to keep value and price in lockstep. In essence, we pay for scientific research out of taxpayer dollars because the market cannot price it correctly. So you have something which I believe to be a fantastic value, including military value and potentially industrial value as it is translated from pure science into technology. However, for some reason, the United States has been losing its appetite for funding high-level scientific research and protecting it with academic freedom as the university system goes into freefall. That is, our university system is structured as a Ponzi scheme. And after Vannevar Bush and the Endless Frontier Doctrine, forced us to do our blue sky research inside of universities rather than inside of research institutions dedicated to the purpose, we developed a weird problem. We would no longer be able to pay our scientists and use the fact that people could contribute the labor of their youth into a system where they would then become professors to train other professors. If each professor trained perhaps 20 um, graduate students to become professors, you can tell that after a very short period of time, Uh, You've got a pyramid scheme that can't keep expanding as we did in the post-war system where we educated sub-10% of our population at a post-secondary level 
to around 1970 or so when we were uh, educating around 50% of our population at a post-secondary level. So when the music stopped, the system started to decay. You had an extremely valuable system. I've said before that theoretical physics largely constructed uh, our modern economy. It invented the World Wide Web. It invented the semiconductor. It gave us nuclear power, nuclear weapons, uh, our communications technology and the electromagnetic spectrum. So many of the things that we take for granted, including molecular biology, came out of theoretical physics. And so what I have likened this to is that the United States had something like a uh, Ferrari convertible and it left the top down so that it started getting filled up with rain and it started scrawling steal me uh, in Mandarin, Farsi, Russian on its front uh, bonnet. We are not protecting our scientific assets. In fact, when Jeffrey Epstein came back out of prison, uh, I think if I recall correctly, I tweeted that Jeffrey Epstein was somebody who was uh, funding what the American government refused to fund. And I recall, if, if I'm not uh, being too self-kind, that I said, welcome back with a period rather than an exclamation point, because I was extremely dismayed that we are fundamentally leaving this open. We left a niche for such a person to start exploiting us. If Jeffrey Epstein was able to find this niche, then I believe that other nations will be able to find it as well. So what happened inside of the scientific enterprise is that many scientists had some memory from inside of the system when professors would in fact have potentially second homes or even third homes where they would be paid at a level that was commensurate with financiers uh, or high-priced lawyers. That in essence, the children of academic families were growing up uh, with the children of very well-to-do families because there wasn't such income and asset inequality in the United States. I believe that the need to pay the scientific community, particularly the top members of the scientific community, at a far higher level is not a question of taxpayer dollars. It's a question of, first of all, being fair to the community that created our economy. Those are not taxpayer dollars. They are scientific dollars, in my opinion. Uh, we can argue that at some other point. But it's also a question of national interest. That is, that it is completely irresponsible for us to pretend that the market uh, for scientific research talent should be determined by your ability to teach undergraduates. We should probably decouple the teaching and research enterprises. We should probably get rid of the majority of our research enterprise. And we should take care of the people who are obeying power laws at a very high level for the national interest. It's not a question about uh, pay, overpaying them. It's a question of we are leaving a valuable asset unguarded. And I believe that Jeffrey Epstein was attempting uh, in part, to gain control of that asset. That's why people like George Church or Robert Trivers or Stephen Hawking uh, or any one of a number of people like Lisa Randall were found on Jeffrey Epstein's island. By the way, I think it's very important to stop using the fun phrases pedophile island and Lolita Express when you have people who almost certainly are not part of any kind of orgiastic culture like Lisa Randall or Betsy Devine. It's ridiculous. Uh, in part, what we're doing is we're turning a salacious story into a very dangerous national emergency if, in fact, Jeffrey Epstein was up to something very different uh, than the mainstream story would have you believe. So why is it that I am so disturbed by this and coming forward in this way? Well, there are a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is 
is that I came to think about the following issue, uh, which I, I find potentially dispositive. I've started asking people who knew Jeffrey Epstein, did the character you met, whoever that person was, impress you as being capable, characterologically, of taking his own life out of desperation when he still clearly had many cards to play? He, he un- almost certainly had many secrets involving very powerful people. The man I met was so confident and so contemptuous of normal morality that I don't believe he was even bothered particularly by the reputation of being a pedophile from his previous uh, stay as a guest of, um, uh, of the state of Florida. I believe that Jeffrey Epstein, in fact, was contemptuous. He thought it was ridiculous that he would be jailed for such a thing. And he thought that while it's a matter of petty morality for you and me, Uh, to mull over, he simply had to make sure that he didn't run afoul of the system again. All right. Assume that I'm correct, that he was such a person who would laugh at the shame that others would bestow upon him. Then something very interesting happens. As you go down the various branches of the decision tree, you find that there has to be another unseen force if this is true. Is he dead or not dead? Well, I can put a small weight on the idea that he isn't even dead. Uh, People's deaths have been faked before. I don't think that that's what happened, but it's possible. Uh, Or he could be dead. Then he could be dead either by his own hand or the hand of another. Um, If he is dead by his own hand, it could be an induced suicide, as we saw uh, Sullivan was trying to induce in Martin Luther King. Or it could be uh, uh, of his own hand. If of his own hand, could it be out of fear, out of shame, or out of a sense of duty to something more. If he was in fact murdered, a hole would have had to have been punched in the timeline so that somebody could have gotten to him, or there would have to be a tremendous coincidence that somehow uh, he was left alone in a jail which had not had a history uh, of suicides in over a decade, if I recall correctly. In any of these branches of the decision tree, Something is at play and something is at work. Unless you believe that somehow I have it wrong and that people who knew Jeffrey Epstein would support the idea that he would take his own life out of fear or shame, which I find essentially impossible given the character that he chose to project or that the actor playing the financier and whiz kid Jeffrey Epstein chose to project to me. I've checked this with several people and in general, Everyone had the same impression that he was completely contemptuous of normal human beings with their petty moralities. It is by the ability to work over all branches of the decision tree that I've gained confidence. First, that I started talking about this ages ago, and anybody who I've discussed Jeffrey Epstein with will remember me using the word construct even before um, he was arrested and jailed uh, for solicitation of prostitution of minors. Uh, so I've been, I've been at this for 15 years, not knowing it was going to end like this. Um, I think many of us have tweeted out that if he was in fact att- attached to the intelligence community, that he was going to have to die because otherwise these secrets would get out. And am I scared that I'm thinking about releasing this to the general public? Yes, but I'm also scared about not releasing this to the general public. My belief is that this was a poorly constructed operation 
And that when it comes to light, which intelligence community it was, we are in danger of countries that I care a great deal about being thought to have constructed a pedophilic honey trap using compromat, to use the Russian word, for that which would be used to control people in order to gain some sort of a geopolitical strategic advantage. Now, I am not of the opinion that uh, Jeffrey Epstein um, was a savory character. And I'm not saying that he didn't uh, hire prostitutes or coerce women into orgies or what have you. But my guess is that at the moment, um, he was not using that uh, particular kink of his for children in order to enmesh uh, scientists or other politicians, as the news media sometimes hints at when it is not suggesting that he's simply dead by his own hand. In fact, I think it's extremely dangerous to think about this as being the decision of a country. Now, I'm not going to lie. I've thought that the country might be Israel. And as an American Jew who's lived in Israel, I don't think Israel came to this decision if, in fact, he is a product of the uh, Israeli intelligence network. In fact, this would be something that would be top secret. It would have been decided by a tiny number of individuals. And it is not right to take down a nation based upon the idea that you can't even do intelligence work because you contrive such a ridiculous idea as Jeffrey Epstein in order to gain compromise and therefore control over influential people inside of another country. What I would believe is instead that this is a tiny program and that these people should come forward or that we should find them by reinitiating the Church and Pike Commissions. There is now so much bizarre stuff of this kind that it is time to revisit the Church and Pike Commissions of the mid-1970s to find out what our intelligence and other intelligence agencies may have been up to. We need something to restore our confidence. <coughs> and when and if we find out that a foreign power has been operating in the U.S., perhaps with our consent or perhaps uh, we are, in fact, gaining some benefit from an operation that we could not ourselves do post-Church and Pike, I think what we would be, do well to realize is, is that this situation is not the responsibility of any country, but the responsibility of people in the intelligence community who would have gone out of control. Now, do I know this to be true? Absolutely not. Am I infallible? Far from it. I wouldn't have shared with you that I was wrong about Bernie Madoff, uh, in fact, if all of these conspiracy theories turned out to be exactly true. Some of them still remain to be proven. But what I've tried to do is to try to talk to you about the idea that I don't think that the story is being fully explored. I'm extremely dismayed that over a very brief period of time, we went from suggesting that uh, Jeffrey Epstein was allegedly dead by his own hand to believing the medical examiner's report as if this was uh, conclusive. In fact, the charge that he might have been murdered with uh, an understanding of the powers that be that controlled the correctional facility in which he was housed includes the charge that the medical examiner's report would likely have been doctored. That's not an additional charge. You wouldn't murder somebody if the report would conclusively show murder uh, unless you actually knew that you had enough control over the system to control it all. Furthermore, there has to be a facility that keeps local law enforcement, local medical officers 
from stumbling over something of high value. You couldn't responsibly run the intelligence community, which has to be able to carry out covert operations, operations that are disturbing operations that are effective, uh, without constantly fearing that low-level law enforcement and low-level medical examiners could blow the whole thing sky high. Now, whatever the facility is that keeps our high-level intelligence work safe from low-level enforcement could easily have been operative. I don't mean to suggest that it was, only that it is not reasonable to suggest that it is crazy to assume that the medical examiner could be induced to file a report to support uh, an official narrative. It is time to return to investigative journalism we can trust. It is time to return to committees of the House and Senate that have the power to investigate these things, and it is long past due that the intelligence services be revisited. If they, in fact, have very little to hide, then this shouldn't really be a big problem. But at the moment, the American people have lost full confidence Uh, in our ability to get to the bottom of truths as to whether foreign countries are meddling in our uh, national elections, as to whether foreign countries are using their ability to send graduate students into the STEM pipeline to spy on us, as to whether foreign countries are using our tech platforms uh, in order to help them with their military advantage over the United States. Now, I really don't want to come back to the Jeffrey Epstein story. So what I'm saying to you is, it's quite possible that Jeffrey Epstein is simply dead by his own hand, that he was a pervy billionaire or near billionaire who had an interest in science and also uh, an interest in young women that ranged from women of perhaps of uh, age 23 down either to 18, 15, 12, what have you. Maybe the official story is true. All I'm trying to suggest is, is that for some reason, I picked this one person to tell a 15-year story about that I believed he was an intelligence construct of probably another country operating in the center of the United States elite. And I believe that that is an additional piece of information because there's no one else that I've been telling this story about. I've never met another person like this. This is a completely sui generis exception to my general uh, understanding of the world. And I think if I am correct that there was something very much amiss, that it was obviously amiss, obvious to anybody who wished to see it, just as uh, the world clearly closed their eyes to Jeffrey Epstein's problems uh, when it was found that he was asking for massages from underage girls in Florida. Somebody was turning a blind eye towards this story, almost certainly, because it was too salacious not to be interesting. It's the kind of a story that would move... uh, newspapers. It would uh, sell advertising spots. It's far too juicy for people to take this little of an interest in. And I want to say one last thing about this. Um, Jeffrey Epstein was enmeshed with a guy named John Brockman, who was a guy who in some sense gave me my first break on a larger stage. It is commonly believed at the moment by certain members of the media that John Brockman was complicit in the underage uh, behavior, uh, underage interest that uh, Jeff Epstein showed in young girls. The one thing I can add is, is that I met John Brockman and his wife Katinka Matson at Stuart Brand's Interval Bar sometime in the last, I don't know, one to three years. And when John and I sat down, 
I can tell you with certainty that John warned me that he had had an interaction with Jeffrey that he had found very disturbing and that John had been forced to walk out of his house realizing that Jeffrey Epstein had had a problem. Now, John has not come forward, and I don't know that there's anybody else in a position to tell this story, but I can say with some certainty that John was not happy about this and that if John was, in fact, uh, tolerant of a Hugh Hefner-style person, the person I met for no re- had no reason to say this to me was certainly not okay with Jeffrey Epstein, was in fact warning me away from him when I had no interest in, in seeing Jeffrey at that point. So I do wish to say that I, I think that the uh, conspiracy theorizing that I'm seeing is of a lower quality and a lower level. Of course, if you want, I could find out that the entire Edge network is somehow uh, at risk and implicated, but I can say as somebody on the very periphery, I, I wrote no books for John, I didn't go to the billionaire's dinners, I never went to this island, I never flew on the plane, I met him once, and I had a phone call with him afterwards. I can tell you that Um, I don't personally believe that John Brockman was uh, caught up in this at the level that is now being alleged by certain members of the press who I feel uh, are perhaps not as responsible as they might be. Anyway, um, that's more or less what I have to say on the subject. And with this, I intend to, to the extent possible, exit the Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy business. You've been through the portal. Thanks for joining us. (music) 